This is R.J. Rush Dooney, Easy Chair Number 112, December the 23rd, 1985. Today I'm going to deal with a variety of subjects, but very briefly to begin with, an interesting book by Charles J. Halperin, Russia and the Golden Horde published by the Indiana University Press in Bloomington, Indiana, in 1985. It's a very thorough and outstanding study of the Mongol impact on medieval Russian history. By and large, I would say it is of interest only to historians concerned with this field. However, there are a few things in it that I would like to share with you. It is a book I personally enjoyed. One of the remarkable facts that uh, marked the Golden Horde, beginning with Genghis or Genghis Khan, was their favoritism. It amounted to virtually that for Christianity, and it did Christianity no good. They gave to the Christian church in Russia immunity from taxation and privileges, the Mongol horde disappeared, the Christians had a much more difficult time with their own Russian rulers. The reason for this favoritism was a very pragmatic one. Beginning with Genghis Khan, the Mongol rulers recognized the character of the Christians. They recognized that these people were honest in a way that others were not, were faithful and obedient in a way that others were not, and therefore made up a trusty and faithful bureaucracy. So, <clears throat> in Russia, the church was given immunity. In Central Asia and China, which at that time was a vast mission field for both the Church of Armenia and the Assyrian or Nestorian Church. There were bishops, there were churches, there were native converts and leaders in great numbers. Genghis Khan used these, in particular the Armenian churchmen. The result was that because they had been used in the Mongol uh, tax gathering and treasury offices, when the Mongol uh, rulers were overthrown, the people turned on the Christians because they were so closely associated with the Mongols, and they destroyed them, wiped them out, and a vast area of Christianity disappeared. Well, Halperin does not go into that, but I'm just giving that to you <clears throat> as a little bit of uh, background. He does deal with the immunity to taxation for the church. I'd like to share with you one little item that I thought was delightful. It was in the last days of uh, <coughs> the Mongol rule, and both the Russians and the Mongols knew that uh, there was going to be conflict, that the Russians were going to try to resist. And therefore, both were preparing for war. However, uh, 
the two groups were on different sides of a key river. And until the river froze, they couldn't do anything because to try to cross the river in boats would mean they would be easily picked off a few at a time. So, to uh, read Halperin's account, Meanwhile, the Russians and the Tatars exchanged insults and arrows across the Ugra, which could only be crossed when frozen over. As soon as the river did freeze, however, which would have allowed the armies to engage at last, both sides simultaneously retreated. The Muscovite bookman hailed this coincidence as a miracle. Such was the episode in which Russia supposedly won its liberty at last and threw off the Tatar yoke. It occurred without a pitched battle and with the Russians allied with one group of Tatars against another. Nor was it apparent to anyone at the time that the great horrid 1480 offensive against Russia was to be the last, unquote. <laughs> That's delightful, I think. Now to a book that I think is very, very interesting reading. It's by Joy Day Buell and Richard Buell, Jr. Buell, D-U-E-L, C as in boy. The Way of Duty, A Woman and Her Family in Revolutionary America. Published by W. W. Norton and Company in 1984. This particular woman who is the focus of this book was Mary Fitch. She kept her letters and journals from 1736 to 1818. And as a result of it, we have a vivid account of the Puritan character, the problems of a particular family, and the life of the time. It's a moving account, sometimes very sad, as you see all the problems that they encountered and the grief. One of the things that uh, was touching was the concern of parents for their families. The Puritan family was one of the strongest families in all of human history. Their intense love and devotion one to another was something uh, very remarkable. As a result, the families were very close, took care of one another, maintained a loyalty with character. The book is also interesting on the French and Indian War, the sidelights we get on the uh, root causes of the War of Independence. As the authors say, and I quote, for the Americans, and it was during this war that they began to call themselves Americans rather than colonists. It was the source of a new self-confidence. No longer the mere inheritors of a land won by others they had proved their right of possession by their courage and competence in defending it. Though the British officers had often 
shown contempt for the colonists they led. The men themselves knew that they had rendered indispensable services. The insults rankled, of course, and returning soldiers had stories of British arrogance to tell that angered their hearers at home, where attempts to assert the imperial power continued to annoy. For the most part, however, Americans felt more pride in being part of a conquering empire than resentment of past wrongs which in any case a grateful Mother England would surely now regress, unquote, or so they hoped. The conduct of the British officers then and later was uh, thoroughly deplorable, and it did create problems. As a matter of fact, the British troops felt that uh, local law was uh, something to pay no attention to, that they could do as they pleased, and they were above the law. So it did lead to problems, and Americans now, while still loyal, began to separate themselves in their thinking from uh, the uh, mother country. The Puritan character was apparent throughout. The saying, the way of duty is the way of safety, was important to these people. They had much to be afraid of when the War of Independence broke out, because troops in those days were mercenaries, that is, European troops. And both British and Hessian troops were savages, much given to rape and to looting, so that, if anything, uh, those who were undecided very quickly came to be uh, very anti-British. On the other hand, one of the things that comes through loud and clear, and one of the heart-rending accounts is that within her own family, Mary Fish saw persons mistreated and abused, attempts made to exploit them and to take advantage of the soldiers after they had fought. Another factor that is interesting in this book is that we see the shift in theology. The emphasis on doctrine began to have added to it the emphasis on experience. Experience in the form of the kind of thing that subsequently led to revivalism. Thus, one person who was hesitating to make a profession of faith said, it is not that I doubt, but I do not feel. In other words, there had been no uh, great emotional experience. This book is very moving as it describes the life of a family as they face death in their own ranks, as they face problems, injustice, abuse from people who should have been grateful, having good men misinterpret and uh, abuse 
uh, them without knowing the full circumstances. For example, it's sad to read that uh, Isaac Bacchus, one of the great men of the time, misunderstood something that Pastor Fish had to say and had written about and wrote rather harshly and critically of him. I enjoyed this book because it gave me, again, a fresh insight into the life of the times. Uh, there are so many things here, it's almost a temptation to start at the beginning and read right straight to, through to you. A woman was a heroic woman. Uh, I was deeply moved by it. Well, on to something else. A book was issued recently with Ronald Reagan as the ostensible author entitled Abortion and the Conscience of the Nation. It has sections by C. Everett Coots, the Surgeon General, and Malcolm Muggeridge. It is an excellent book with some good data on uh, abortion. I thought the quotation that Malcolm Muggeridge uh, has from Dostoevsky is good. By the way, Muggeridge's title for his section is The Humane Holocaust. In other words, these humanitarians and what they're doing is resulting in a holocaust. He says, Dostoevsky says, love toward men, but love without belief in God very naturally leads to the greatest coercion over men and turns their lives completely into hell on earth, unquote. Then another important recent book is Stephen W. Mosier, Journey to the Forbidden China, published at 1795 and by Macmillan a division of Macmillan, the Free Press, 1985. Mosier, of course, is the one who wrote on Broken Earth, the forced abortions in China, and was, for that book, kicked out of the Stanford Graduate School, even though he had completed his work, virtually. He describes the life of rural China having journeyed into the far interior, the ecological disasters that are being created. The fact that the communism of Red China has gone so far that the fish in a stream belong to the state. He deals with all that has been done to equalize income, that is, for everyone except the elite, and how production has dropped dramatically. It's a very sad book because it describes a disaster of great dimension. Mosier now lives in Fresno, California, about 130 miles from here. I don't know what he's doing, but uh, I'm glad he's continuing to write on this subject. We are facing a major worldwide disaster because of abortion and zero population growth. In Red China, with the policy of only one 
child per couple. This means that because boys are the means of social security supporting their parents in their old age, girl babies are being killed. So you're going to have a population that is disproportionately, overwhelmingly masculine after a generation. In 30 years, the population of Germany will be half of what it is today. And this will be true in varying degrees of all of Europe, and to a lesser degree, but still, it will be true of the United States. Depopulation of the Western world. This is what is in process. It is suicidal. Another book of interest, just briefly, is by Charles Murray, published by Basic Books in New York in 1984, Losing Ground, American Social Policy, 1950-1980. The thesis of Murray's book is that we started the war on poverty, and what we have done is to help neither them nor the country as a whole. We have created a disaster. Crime has increased. We've hurt every area of life. And so he has some concrete proposals for change, a very important work. Now to another, Colin Platt, P-L-A-T-T, -T, P as in Paul, published by the Fordham University Press in New York in 1984, The Abbeys and Priories of Medieval England. A very detailed work on all the abbeys and priories, and the extent of their work and influence. I won't go into it except to call it to your attention if you're interested in this type of uh, study. It's well worthwhile. It's very conscientious and specific. But a couple of points of interest. The rules at Wiccan said that each recuperating monk was to have a gallon and a half of beer daily with two good quality loaves of bread and such other food as he would normally have enjoyed at the priory. Adequate fuel and uh, any servants who attended him were also to be cared for. Then another fact, one which we tend to uh, forget about, the spoilation of a medieval monasteries. This occurred well before the Reformation. There were a great many currents that uh, were common uh, to uh, the late Middle Ages that led to it. One of them was the growing power of the monarchs. And uh, Platt writes, the spoilation of the monastic church beginning long before the dissolution was made the easier by economic adversity by shaken self-confidence and by the merely lukewarm support of his friends. Already while John 22nd was Pope 1316-34, the current economic difficulties of the Cistercians had been explained to him as a consequence not of their own bad management of their estates but of other misfortunes out of their control, of the greed of their neighbors, of perpetual wars and natural calamities, 
of taxes from which they ought to have been and were no longer exempt. None of these problems went away in the 14th century. For many, too, the 15th century had nothing more promising to bring. Among the possessioners, the true crisis developed about half a century after the reverses of the Black Death, unquote. So, life changed through these various factors. Two friends of Calcedon and of mine are Martin and Deidre Bobgan, the as in boy, O-B-G-A-N. I've called attention to others of their books, such as The Psychological Way, The Spiritual Way, and Hypnosis and the Christian. This book is titled How to Counsel from Scripture and is published by Moody Press, 1985. I don't know the price of it, but it is an excellent book. This is a book for all Christians as well as for pastors because it deals with the facts of psychotherapy and how dangerous they are. He calls attention to the dramatic failure of psychological counseling. Both Bob Gans, by the way, are psychologists. They point out how even conversation with loved ones has a more curative power and conversation is the most prominent activity in counseling. The author cites a statement from the National Council of Teachers of English that the use of language is a moral act. The use of language is a moral act. And among friends, when so used, it becomes a moral asset. Moreover, the basic therapy is the person himself working under God. This is a book that all pastors and all Christians should read because today psychotherapy is so heavily touted. Incidentally, they note, among other things, all of God's law is good. They have a section on counseling on the law, on the church, on the biblical model of man, an excellent section, because today a good uh, deal of our problems are created by the fact that the kind of model given to us of what a man or a woman should be comes from our secular culture, and it is guaranteed to produce problems. But the biblical model of man, what does it involve? The Bob Gans go into it thoroughly and tell us how, when we understand that model, it produces health in us. Well, an important work also, I think it was written as possibly a textbook, I'm not sure, but it may be out of print. It was published in 1976, translated from the French, written by Jean Chesneau, Marianne Bastille, Marie-Claire Berger, China from the Opium Wars to the 1911 Revolution. I would say the 
authors are uh, liberal to leftist in their point of view. All the same, it is an excellent study of the period, of the problems that developed, of the impact on those problems of old Chinese philosophies as well as Marxism. It deals with the old order under the emperor and the emperor as a mediator between heaven and earth. There is a great deal on the secret societies and their power in old China. Then it has a great deal about depopulation and the impact of famines, drought, and the like on China. How in one district alone during one famine in this era, five million people died. And the area was so totally depopulated that they had to move people in from other areas to repopulate it. There is no reason to believe that this has not happened again in many portions of China since Mao Zedong took over. We simply don't know. One interesting fact is this. A traveler describes going through one portion of uh, interior China during a fearful uh, drought and famine in 1878 in Shanxi. This traveler, an Englishman, Timothy Richards, 1845 to 1919, was an English missionary who did have some influence on the reformist movement at the end of the century in China. As he passed, he saw dead bodies along the roadside, clogging the stream. Uh, most of them naked because the bodies were stripped to have something to sell for food. Bodies dragged by a dog or dogs. But what he did see was carts daily full of women being taken away for sale. In old China, when there was a famine, Survival came by selling off the women one by one in order to have money for food to live. And areas would be then virtually depopulated of women if the famine continued long enough. The women would be taken and sold in the cities and elsewhere. As a matter of fact, the Barbary Coast was full of Chinese girls who had been brought over by the boatload be worked to death in the houses of prostitution, and then their bodies within a year or two dumped into the bay. In this account, the Western powers do not come out looking very well, least of all England. And one of the more moving aspects of it is a letter uh, to the uh, Queen of England, Queen Victoria, in 1839, by a Chinese le leader criticizing 
the British opium smuggling.
In this letter, the Chinese diplomat writes, The way of heaven is fairness to all. It does not suffer us to harm others in order to benefit ourselves. Men are alike in this all the world over. They that cherish life, they hate what endangers life. Your country lies 20,000 leagues away. But for all that, the way of heaven holds good for you as for us. And your instincts are not blind from ours. I am told that in your country, opium smoking is forbidden under severe penalties. This means that you are aware of how harmful it is. But better than to forbid the smoking of it would be to forbid the sale of it and better still to forbid the production of it, which is the only way of cleansing the contamination at its source. The diplomat went on to say, Why are you, Queen Victoria, allowing your country to force opium on our people in order to destroy them? The French were also involved in this, by the way. England fought two opium wars to compel China to accept opium. It was a new thing. They had not previously been users of opium. They did not know of it. And now opium was forced onto them by two wars. In the whole process of the European treatment of China, America doesn't come out too well either. This is an important aspect of history. And while we can agree that uh, a great deal of misinformation has been promoted about colonialism, and that colonialism was often very helpful, we must remember that there is this kind of thing also in the past. And a good deal of the world remembers it with bitterness. The Opium Wars were not the finest hour of the West. One of the sad aspects of the Opium Wars was the fact that one of the English diplomats who helped force the treaty onto China after the war was Sir John Bowring, who, as he was leaving South China, looked and saw the wreckage of a Catholic mission, and he was inspired to write his hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. It's a beautiful hymn, but sad that it came from so hypocritical a man, a man who, because it was his duty to do what he was told, forced onto China such a measure. I have on another occasion dealt with children uh, reading in schools, in our Christian schools, the Chalcedon Christian School. The publications are put out, uh, weekly readers, by a group, um, God's World Publications, Box 2330, Asheville, North Carolina, 28802. If you have a Christian school or if you have a home school, I heartily commend their materials for your children. They are beautiful. 
I enjoy reading them. And uh, let me read to you one of these from the reader, It's God's World, the weekly paper. Watch the Birds by Joanne de Young. Now is the perfect time to watch the birds. If you live in a place where winters are warm, you probably have many birds to watch right now. If you live in a cold, snowy climate, you can still find birds. When almost all other creatures are asleep for the winter, birds still fly about, flocking to our feeders, ruffling their feathers against the cold. Have you ever wondered how a bird can walk on the snow and not freeze its feet? Walking barefoot in the snow would be dangerous for us. Our toes would become frostbitten. Yet birds don't seem to mind snow on their feet. That's because God made their feet special. They can't feel cold snow or wet puddles. Most creatures have certain nerves in their feet and legs to help them feel dampness and cold snow. God did not put these nerves in birds' feet, so they simply don't feel much. This may help you to understand. Hold up one thumb and look at your thumbnail. Now, very carefully stick out your tongue and lick your thumbnail. Don't lick your thumb, only your nail. You can't feel your wet tongue on your nail, can you? That's because you have no nerves to feel dampness in your nails, so your nails feel nothing. That's just what a bird's feet feel in snow or puddles, nothing. God put no nerves there so that the birds would be comfortable. Have you ever watched a bird sleep in a tree or on a telephone wire? How can it sleep without falling? Again, God made a bird's feet special. Inside of each perching bird's foot, God put special strings called tendons. These tendons are attached to the bird's toes. They run from the toes through the foot, up the leg, and over the knee. When a bird is awake, it stands up straight. The tendons run like straight strings all the way up over the knee. When the bird falls asleep, it begins to relax. As it relaxes, it bends its knees. The bending knees pull on the tendons that run over it. This pulls on the connection in the toes. As the tendon pulls tight, the toes are pulled so tight that they curl inward. So the bird's toes curl around the twig or wire. The more soundly a bird sleeps, the more it bends its knees. That makes the tendon pull more tightly so that the toes curl more tightly. Perching birds can sleep without worrying about falling. God gave them just the right type of feet. Birds can live also in cold and wet weather because God gave them the right kind of clothes. Feathers are a bird's clothes. If you could take a bird's feather and drop some water on it, you'd see the water roll right off. It doesn't soak through. The feather is waterproof, just like a raincoat. If you live in a cold climate, you put on extra clothes in the winter. When the temperature drops, God puts extra feathers on the birds that stay up north. Some birds have 1,000 more feathers in the winter than they do in the summer. That's their extra layer of clothes. Sometimes a bird's feathers become messy. They seem to pull apart and look like they have rips and tears in them. Then the feathers are no longer waterproof and they let cold air through them. God knew that this would happen, so he made feathers very special. Each feather is made of hundreds of little hairs. 
Each of those hairs has thousands of hooks along it. Hooks on the top of the hair point upward towards hooks on the hair above it. Hooks on the bottom point downward towards hooks on the hair below it. All these hooks look like parts of zippers. When a bird's feathers pull apart, the bird simply runs its beaks over each feather. All those hooks grab each other and hook together. That locks the hairs together. Presto, the feather is zipped back into shape. God gave each bird thousands of zippers on its feathers to keep it dry and warm. Jesus said that we should look at the birds to see how well our Heavenly Father takes care of his creatures. That's what we just saw. God surely does take care of his creatures well. Jesus also said that the Father loves us much more than he loves his other creatures. If he cares so well for his little birds, and if he loves us much more, surely he will care for us. We are God's very special creatures under his special care. What more can we ask? Watch the birds this winter and think of God's special care. Well, you can see why I enjoy the children's readers. If you decide to write in, tell them thank you for me. I should write to them, and I haven't, I'm sorry to say. Another book of considerable interest, Wallington's World, a Puritan artisan in 17th century London, by Paul S. Seaver, S-E-A-V-E-R. Seaver is a Stanford University professor, and the book was published this year by Stanford University Press. It's an interesting report on a Puritan, a man who was uh, a turner, that is, a lath worker who made furniture, chairs. He was not uh, a normal Puritan in the sense that he wrote volume after volume of private journals, and not many of them wrote like that. On top of that, beginning from his mother's death when he was an infant, he was a, an insecure child, and he did try suicide a number of times. After his marriage, he became very stable and became something of a leader in the community. He gives us a good sidelight on what an ordinary person, a working man, thought, what, what his Puritan, what a Puritan faith was. And for him, for a Christian, there must be a conformity of life that uh, it meant for him keeping God's law. He went into a great deal of emphasis on Bible study, then too on daily self-examination. This was an aspect of Puritanism that helped destroy it. It became too introspective, and after the fervor of the faith waned, you had the endless self-diagnosis and analysis which created uh, psychology as a substitute religion in due time. Moreover, 
Wellington was unlike other Puritans, although there were some like him who were overly somber and uh, sober. He felt that laughing was a sin. It was necessary for him to be serious all the time. On the other hand, his theology, which was more or less Calvinistic, uh, was uncomplicated. We should remember that Calvin said that predestination was not a doctrine for disputation, but for the comfort of the saints. And the Puritans insisted that predestination was a comfortable doctrine. That was the word they used most about it, comfortable, meaning a doctrine giving comfort. It gave comfort because it made clear that God is sovereign, that if we love him and believe in him, we are in his hands, and he makes all things work together for good for them who love him, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Wellington's journal gives us many interesting sidelights on the life of the times. For example, he says in, at one point that he heard of a group of married men in Southwark who had lived, quote, in the sin of buggery and were sworn brothers to it and uh, committed the sin on Sabbath mornings at sermon time to show their contempt of the faith. He also describes the royalists and from one who was very favorable to the king, step by step he was alienated by the king's action. He reports on the oaths of the uh, royalists, in particular the cavalrymen and the others who were uh, particularly hostile to the roundheads, the cavaliers. Uh, for example, they would recite things, the cannoneers, the royalist cannoneers, uh, God damn me, God ran me nine miles in hell if ever a roundhead in England do dwell. And the toast of the cavaliers, uh, we drink a health to King Charles in whom we live, move, and have our being. We drink a health to the confusion of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We drink a health to the confusion of Tim's God. We drink and we will drink and be drunk and whore and be damned and will not be beholding to God to save us. We had rather be in hell with our courages than in heaven with the roundheads. Unquote. Now this kind of thing is not written about much today. As a matter of fact, we are not told in history books nowadays what accounts of the era reveal that in the War of Independence in this country, the British troops regularly burned churches, burned Bibles, showed their contempt for the Puritan faith. They had this from the Royalists of the Commonwealth era. This kind of thing alienated, of course, a great many Christians of the era who were not that greatly concerned with politics 
in the beginning. There is a good section on the divine right of kings and revolution. The uh, author does justice to a number of incidentals as he goes along so that it's a good sidelight on the era. Wallington, the author points out, saw politics as black and white because he believed very strongly that politics is a moral concern and that there is a right and wrong in politics. There are excellent sections valuable for Christians to study on work and wealth. We hear a great deal about the uh, Puritan work ethic, but for Wallington, the author points out, work, though good, was a subordinate one. When he proposed by God's help to make more speed and redeem the time, he was not proposing to work longer and harder at his last. Rather, he was vexed that he oversaw till it was past five o'clock in the morning on a fast day when he had proposed to arise early in order to go up to his study to pray, unquote. Moreover, the purpose of work was not to accumulate wealth, but to further God's kingdom. He said, I quote, God is set upon justice in another manner than you think of. The Lord stands much upon the observing of the law and upon obedience as Seaver, the author, says, the point of a calling was not to gain riches, but to be profitable and useful to oneself and one's family, church, and commonwealth. If wealth came, it came not as a reward, but as an obligation. We are stewards and have nothing but that we have received. We came naked into the world, and we must so again return shortly when we must give account of our stewardship. It was the obligation of the rich to relieve their poor brethren, especially but not only in times of dearth. Hospitality and neighborliness may have been vanishing virtues in 17th century uh, England, but the demise of those traditional obligations was not owing to Puritan individualism. Let us show, he said, that we have not forsaken the fear of God. Let us refresh our brethren and not be ashamed of their poverty. If we were poor, we would think it the rich man's duty to relieve us. The royal law is to do as we would be done by. This is the law of God, the law of nature, the law of nations. It is equity to do it. It is iniquity to omit it. It is interesting at the same time how the... Uh, non-Puritans were taking advantage of the Puritans. And Wallington writes about this, how they would uh, try to trouble his conscience by accusing them of sharp practice and profiteering, knowing that their feelings would be hurt and they would lean over backwards to give them a bargain or to do uh, something over when there was no need to do it. The, uh, and the author comments, Wellington knew from experience that the practice of the saints reflected upon the whole community. Some customers regularly sought to take advantage of the fact, 
After telling Wallington that when she got home, others would look over her purchases and tell her that she paid too much, that she always goes to these Puritans and they make her pay so dear, one customer tried to get Wellington, Wallington to name a lower price. On another occasion, even more troubling, a gentlewoman had purchased some woolen trenchers, wooden trenchers from Wallington's shop and had been assured by Wallington's apprentice that they were made of maple, when in fact they were made of aspen. On her departure, a neighbor's apprentice told her that she had been cozened, and on the following day she returned and confronted Wallington with the evidence of deceit. Wallington was clearly embarrassed, but what cut the deepest was the remark that, I partly know you for an honest man, and that you've lived under a faithful minister for a long time. For such a person to lie and cousin was, she said, to bring slander upon religion. Wallington accepted the charge as true and returned the purchase price, but confessed that, as for the wrong his apprentice had done, Wallington could no way help it. However, the accusation rankled, and he went on to record in his journal that it is a detestable thing to me, and it goes to my heart to think of it. For it opens the mouth of the wicked to say, These Puritans, they will not swear, but they will lie and cousin. Unquote. So everyone was ready to take advantage of the Puritan's tender conscience. There's a great deal more in this book. It's a very moving and simple account. Then, very briefly, a very able historian, Jeffrey Burton Russell, has written on Lucifer, the Devil in the Middle Ages, published, as have been several of his other books, by the Cornell University Press. This one came out in 1984, and I think it is definitely inferior to his other books. What is of interest to me is that... Uh, he brings out very clearly the Manichaean, the dualistic hostility to the Old Testament as evil. It was agreed, he writes, that the Pentateuch was evil, that Moses and the patriarchs were demons or demoniacally inspired, and that the Mosaic law was an imposture of the devil. To get around the fact that Christ quoted Moses, some resorted to the device of two different Moses. Such beliefs may have encouraged the anti-Judaism that had been growing since the late 11th century. Cathar skepticism extended to small portions of the New Testament as well. John the Baptist was sometimes regarded as another demonic figure, unquote. The uh, book has a number of interesting uh, comments about uh, the medieval view of the devil. But basically, I would say it does not compare to his a book on medieval witchcraft. Very briefly, to those of you who are interested in uh, a book on the early church and its view of wealth and property, an excellent series of sermons has been published in uh, paperback in 1984, freshly translated by the St. Vladimir Seminary Press in Crestwood, New York. St. John Chrysostom on Wealth 
and poverty. These sermons were preached in either 388 or 389 A.D. And they are excellent sermons, and they tell us of the early church's concern for uh, the welfare of the poor. Very briefly now to another item. In the Fundamentalist Journal recently, uh, there was an interesting item. This was in November. Uh, churches need a license to raise funds, City says. This is Clearwater, Florida. This is the kind of thing we're going to see increasingly. In this particular case, it was a crackdown on the Scientologists, but the ordinance covered any church that has 20 members or more and raises $10,000 or more a year. The law requires churches to register with the city and report how much they collect and how they will spend it. The ordinance was upheld last year by the U.S. District Court judge as constitutional, but 12 religious groups, including the National Council of Churches, the Seventh-day Adventists, and the American Jewish Congress, have all appealed the ruling to the U.S. Court of Appeals. This kind of thing is increasingly taking place, and the goal is to eliminate the freedom of the church, to license every aspect of the church's activity. This should concern us. Well, our time is up. Thank you for listening again, and God bless you.